And this is the moment I have been waiting for for like a year. For this, Outspoken would like to welcome Dan Savage as a writer, TV personality, and activist best known for his political and social commentary, as well as his honest approach to sex, love, and relationships. Savage Love is syndicated in newspapers and websites throughout the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia. Outspoken would like to welcome Dan Savage to the air. Dan, are you there? Yeah, hey, how are you guys? We are wonderful. I feel like I've been waiting for this moment for probably since I was 20. Yeah. Which was like, was like a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> totally. God, with that buildup, I hope I don't disappoint. I don't think oh, it's possible I, yeah. for you. We've listened Doubtfully. to your interviews. Yeah, yeah you don't disappoint. <laughs> you definitely cause controversy at times. Dan, we yeah. want to start really quick by, first of all, thank you for coming to a show. You know, in eastern Washington, we seem, we tend to be a little more conservative on this side of the state. A lot more. A lot more. You have been outspoken, for lack of a better word, from as far back as I can remember, um, like I said, from when I first came out, you you have this history of not being afraid or apologetic to say just what's on your mind. Has that always been how you were? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, unfortunately, uh, for my parents, that was the case. Um, my mom raised her, she was raised never to, you know, the children were seen and not heard. And, right. Uh, she wanted her children to be different, and so she encouraged us to have and share our opinions uh, from a really early age, um, which sounded like a great theory when we had the opinions of toddlers or right. you know, second graders. When we got to be middle schoolers and high schoolers, um, then there was hell to pay. Right, and then, <laughs> and then parents get their, their it back, payback. Yeah, it backfires. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So one of your biggest, most well-known projects is the It Gets Better project the campaign um talk to us a little bit about the it gets better talk to us about how it came through um what was the process of launching that whole idea well there was a suicide in greensburg indiana a kid named billy lucas that i read about in september of 2010 and then that fall there were you know there was about 12 or i think 16 other suicides of uh, mostly young uh teenage uh, gay boys mm-hmm. and but just it was a suicide of Billy Lucas that really inspired Terry and I to start the It Gets Better project. You know, the feeling reading about Billy Lucas that, that you got as an adult out gay person was, you know, I wish I could have spoken to that kid for five minutes. Right. Uh, young queer kids who, whose families are perhaps bullying them, who have been bullied by their peers, um, don't have what kids who are bullied for other reasons have. You know, a kid is bullied because of his race or her mm-hmm. faith or his class goes home to parents and family members in the same race, same class, same faith, who they can turn to for support and who have advice about, you know, strategies and and what they did to get through that crap. And queer kids almost invariably go home to entirely straight families and sometimes tragically to families that are also bullying them, Mm -hmm. as we saw with Leela Elkhorn in Ohio. And so the idea of I think it's better project was to harness that impulse that people had, uh, reading about something like Billy Lucas, and after the fact, wishing you could have spoken with that kid, and using social media, using YouTube primarily, to speak to those kids now, um, and really to make, you know, some people look at the Lucas Better Project and think it's this safe, uh, touchy-feely, up-with-people kind of thing, it must be safe the president made one. Right, um, right. But there's there, there's really an upraised middle finger at the heart of it. It's better project. It really mm-hmm. is subversive mm-hmm. and defiant, because what it says to homophobes and transphobes who are abusing their queer kids 
is we're going to talk to your kids whether you want us to or not. But you can't, you know, you may be able to send your kid to a school without a GSA. You may be able to drag your kid off to see some awful Christian conversion therapists in states where that's still legal. Right. But you can't stop us anymore from reaching out to whatever means we have at our disposal, these new means we have at our disposal, to bring the queer youth support group to that kid who's growing up in a place like Greensburg where there isn't a queer youth support group or has parents who would never allow him or her to attend the queer youth support group. And, you know, one of the things I think is important that that, that I think uh, was brought out even more to the forefront because of the Gets Better Project is, you know, Sergey, my co-host here, a year ago he wasn't a co-host, but his story came to us about... You know, being this young, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry to speak for you. Oh right no, now, go for it! Yeah, to this young, <laughs> this young gay kid from a very traditional conservative Russian family, and what it, uh. what we wanted to get his word out was because what we're learning every day is that it's not over yet. We've come a long way mm-hmm. in this society, yes. yep. but you know, people like Sergey's story or Leela Alcorn's story is that there are still kids that need that need our support. And I think that's Absolutely. something that a lot of people and needed to start mm-hmm. seeing. Yeah, that's one of the things that's been really different. Or, you know, we've, we've had to walk a delicate line on the project talking about because right. we don't want to pathologize all queer kids. Not all queer kids are bullied. Not all right. queer kids are suicidal. Not all queer kids who are being bullied are suicidal. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we don't want to put it out there that all queer kids are, uh, you know, just on the verge. Um, right. And it really is a kind of the best of times, worst of times for queer kids. If you're queer and you're 15 years old right now and you're out to your parents and they love and support you. You've got some friends at school who've got your back. There's a GSA at your school, there's an anti-bullying program. That doesn't mean everyone you encounter is going to celebrate, mm-hmm. but there's never been a better time, really, to be a queer kid or that queer kid than right now. Right. But if you're a queer kid and your family is very conservative and they are bullying you and they're sending you to a place, a school where you are bullied, um, without a GSA, without anti-bullying programs. Yeah. In a way, there's never been a worse time to be a queer kid. Right. Because, as David Sedaris wrote in the Against Better book, he benefited from ignorance when he was a little weird queer kid 40 years ago, mm-hmm. because 50 years ago, because nobody knew what a gay person was. Right. Because people were so ignorant of you know the existence of LGBT people that they didn't look at the little queer kid at school or a little weird kid and think queer. They just mm-hmm. thought odd. Yes, and now, right. because of yeah. the success of you know, people coming out and you know how much more knowledge there is out there in the culture about us and our existence, like kids know that we're there, and they're scrutinizing their peers mm-hmm. to see who's queer, and then that can have tremendous social costs and emotional costs for that queer kid who's not out yet or ready to come out yet or is in a really hostile environment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and for a lot of our leaders, religious and political leaders, to say atrocious things against the LGBT community, and then and we see this predominantly over in Russia uh, with Putin and mm-hmm. the anti-LGBT propaganda laws, the driving laws that come out. Um, that's just crazy. So how how do you feel? I mean, we will we probably know what you feel <laughs> we about with Russia. But uh, talk to us a little bit about what's going on in Russia and, and what you think we do about that, how we combat that. Well, what I think is going on in Russia and Nigeria and Uganda right, and Malawi yeah. Yeah. Um, is this effort by these countries that are, by most metrics, failing, failing their citizens mm-hmm. to assert their moral superiority over the West by saying, well, you know, look, here we're not letting queer people get married. We're we're marginalizing them. We're standing up for morality and decency and the decadent West. And it's just this kind of 
scapegoating persecution to distract their mm-hmm. citizens from their government's own failure. It's transparent what's going on. I think that creates a certain responsibility for those of us in the West, uh, where we've seen these remarkable strides for LGBT civil equality, to recognize that the backlash that we fear coming here is actually over there, exactly. and that queer people in Russia and Uganda and Nigeria are paying a price for success of uh, our success, the successes of our movement here, not the final success uh, of our movement, because, you know, we're not done yet. We have a lot yet right. to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a certain responsibility to speak up for people who can't speak up for themselves. And I think you've seen that. Um, you know, you see a lot of uh, big bloggers in the United States uh, who are constantly writing about what's going on in Russia, what's going on in Africa. Um, and I think that's very heartening. Yeah. And yeah. You know, and, and, and it, you know, it's distressing. And, and I've been active in that movement, too, uh, with some uh, other folks in New York and San Francisco. I helped launch the vodka boycott, which, mm-hmm. love it or hate it, it got the issue onto the front pages of newspapers all over the country um, and got people talking about it. Mm-hmm. Terry and I, uh, with a friend here, Matt, organized the largest demonstration at a Russian embassy or consulate in the United States uh, in July that forced, um, you know, that, that became big news in Russia. Uh and, you know, you hear from a Russian uh, queer activists like Masha Gessen that every time we do something like that here and there's a news story about it over there, it really does give uh, them hope over there to oh, keep yeah. Oh, yeah. fighting. But it's going to be a long-ass fight. It, it, it mirrors the treatment of Russian Jews uh, mm-hmm. during the communist era. Exactly. Where they were sort of taken hostage and bashed because that freaked out and angered and annoyed the West. Exactly. Now, you know, you you've built your career on just being who you are um, and being in the media and being loud. Does it ever shock you now because you're asked by, you know, CNN or or us to to get a response on Russia, which is, you know, not necessarily just an LGBT issue. Does it ever shock you that people look to you for (laughs) for commentary on what's going on in the world just at large? Uh, it does, actually. Um, you know, I primarily am an advice columnist, which is kind of a goofy mm-hmm. uh, kind of genre writing that doesn't come with a lot of respectability attached. I think, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that cable networks and newspapers come to me often for comment speaks to, uh, I think, the timidity and the, uh, of a lot of the quote-unquote official spokespersons for the career who work with big organizations who are often so terrified of putting their foot wrong or saying something in emphatic terms, mm-hmm. you know, because they come up through a, you know, a PC hand-wringy, right. uh, call, you know, a PC hand-wringy environment where you don't ever say what exactly what you mean, that everything has to be filtered and processed until it's cheese whiz. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And you don't, you know, you don't want people like that <laughs> to be your spokesperson. You know, people, those kind of quotes are, I think, very interesting yeah. um, or compelling. And so in some ways I get sucked into a vacuum because um, there's so much, you know, PC mal-maling in queer mm-hmm. land uh, that it creates a lot of uh, people who are very self-conscious about opening their mouths. And then I get sucked into that vacuum and then people say, who appointed him the spokesperson? It's like nobody right. did. And I only speak from, I only speak for myself right. as a queer person, but an observant one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it sometimes is a problem. And I also use the tool of humor, uh, the weapon of humor. Yeah, the um, weapon, right? Exactly. We're right you know, there you with see you. That, yeah, 
the Rick Santorum campaign that my readers <laughs> yeah. and I did. And, and that is, that's a great thing, and I think that's really empowering. And when you're a tiny, vulnerable minority who makes yeah. the most yeah. study of the majority, you tend to have a sense of humor about what's yeah. being done mm. to you, and it makes you more appealing. And I, I think one of the reasons I get asked off the comments is I can be serious and funny at the same time, and I can right. help uh, eliminate an issue by making someone laugh and then think. Exactly. Right. Well, because humor is both a weapon and a shield. It can be a great defense strategy, um, you know, for for those yeah. minorities. And mm-hmm. it's a very stealth way of getting oh, yeah. your point across. Oh yeah. It gets in there before they realize. Oh, I maybe shouldn't be laughing at that. And yeah. I need to tell you, when we announced that you would be on the show, we one of our listeners commented and said, "You know, I always loved what he did for Santorum." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, yeah. I like that the readers said did for Santorum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> him. Yeah. Which I really, thought was awesome. <laughs> really getting his name out there in ways he didn't expect, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So on this show, we have been talking. We we actually are doing kind of a series on prep. We're, we're talking a little bit about that. We're doing a little uh, panel on it, too. So we, we know you have, obviously, opinions. So what are your opinions on prep? I mean, there are a lot of controversies out there. Truvada... Whore, um, prep whore, but there's yeah. also, you know, the positive sides to it. Well, when I first read about prep and I read the first study, I had a really negative reaction. I thought it was being oversold and overblown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the benefits of prep seemed to me in reading the study to be attributable to uh, the counseling and the use of condoms because the people who were a part of the study also went in for counseling every three months and had a much higher condom compliance rate. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, it was being presented as they took this drug and ran out there without condoms and they were protected. But as more and more studies have come in, it's really clear that PrEP does provide a very, very high, 95-ish plus percent high mm-hmm. uh, protection uh, rate uh, against HIV infection, even in the absence of condoms. And you have Peter Staley, who's been an AIDS activist for 35 years, forever, since the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and a hugely important one, a hugely smart one, um, uh, Found the treatment action group, uh, original act upper, coming out this week and saying that uh, prep is safer than condoms. That prep alone by itself uh, is uh, provides better protection than condoms. Mm-hmm. And you have to listen to people like Peter Staley. Um, and and uh, you know, and I came around pretty quickly. Unfortunately, people still are throwing around my gut. Re- my gut and first reaction to the first prep study is what I believe right now. Right. Um, which is you know unfair and but par for the course. You know, you're thinking out loud about stuff. And uh, your thinking evolves as you get more information. Exactly. And I know a lot of people on PrEP, and I support PrEP, I support its use. All that said, um, you know, I was there for the tail end of the 70s. I came out in 1980. Mm -hmm. And, you know, HIV is one sexually transmitted infection that we have to worry about. There's also syphilis, there's also gonorrhea, there's also chlamydia. There's also non-gonococcal urethritis. There's a million, not a million, there are many other sexually transmitted infections that PrEP provides no protection from. Mm-hmm. And we just had two gay men in Seattle go blind from ocular syphilis. Really? Wow. strain that's flying around. So even if we all went on PrEP tomorrow, this attitude that that means we can throw away the condoms and return entirely to the kind of 70s mind shaft, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rates of... Um, multi-partner sex, and I'm not a monogamist, I'm not. Right. I'm telling everyone to pair up and move to the suburbs and adopt. <laughs> right. But to return to that kind of excess, right. I think, is really risky and dangerous. And we not only risk, you know, fueling the already existing syphilis epidemic among gay and bi men, but we now know that the emergent 
of an unknown sexually transmitted infection uh, that's fatal is a potential consequence. Exactly right. right. No. And so do we want to return to that? You know, do we want to right. blow the same foot off with the same gun? Exactly. Well, and do you think also what I, I noticed, I mean, like we notice it all the time, but especially with PrEP, what I've noticed is there tends to be this other side that is using moralization of, of mm-hmm. medicine, moralization of a drug uh, to put out some in- misinformation and use fear. Do you think that's also mm-hmm. why we don't always get the correct information, especially, you know, there are more conservative communities as the eastern side of the state tends to be. There's only one doctor in Spokane right now that is willing to even prescribe it. Do you think it's this part of this moralization movement, really, of of medicine, of public, you know, works? Yeah, I, that's always a problem. It's always going to be a problem with us. Um, um, you know, and it's a, it's, not a, it's not a piece with pharmacists who won't you know, give birth control or certain kinds of birth control to women because that uh, enables the immorality of premarital sex, right? Mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. the problem with premarital sex and using birth control is it's just sex for pleasure. And as, you know, same-sex pers, uh, gay men, lesbians, bisexuals, and opposite in same-sex relationships, all of our sex is for pleasure. That's the problem they have with us. Mm-hmm. Right. But mm-hmm. they view our, our romantic and sexual lives as entirely illegitimate because it's never up to procreation. <laughs> right, Although, exactly. you know, these are the same people who say anything is possible with God. And right. So yeah. anything is possible with God, <laughs> then I am, as I said, you know, there's a famous thing on television once, I'm going to keep inseminating my husband and hope for a miracle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just uh, going to say. You can't say both anything yeah. is possible with God and two men can't make a baby. If anything is possible with God, right. make a baby. Yeah. And, and then if us keep, the fact that we keep trying isn't that a beautiful, you know, Christian thing to do, yeah. I guess. I mean, we live in hope. We live in we hope. Live in hope. <laughs> I agree. Living on a prayer. You know, we one of the funny things when we were preparing for your interview, we, you know, we everybody who does an interview has some sort of a formula, and you blew that out of the water because I said where we always have to come up with an angle, Dan Savage has eighty angles. Yeah, and we <laughs> and so basically we have just wanted to get your opinion on everything known to man. You mentioned, you know, we you mentioned your column, we mentioned it earlier. You you mentioned monogamy for a bit. You know, you have these very um, not, what would I say, not conservative views on sex, as anybody who listens to your podcast or reads your, your advice column knows, you have been very open about what your views on monogamy is. Um, do you find that a place like Spokane, a place that's on the redder side of the state, uh, do you find it harder in those places to find your audience because of things like that? Because um, I know you no, live in I- Seattle with your partner. Husband, sorry. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, in red states, you know, I go to colleges sometimes and see, in a lot of places that are the conservative areas, there's, a, there's an audience that's hungry for this kind of information, this kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I reject, I've always rejected the notion that my views on monogamy are uh, non-conservative, because I actually think that the views that we hold and everyone, you know, the culture holds and promotes about monogamy uh, destroy a lot of really wonderful relationships and end a lot of marriage and are uh, a danger to long-term commitments. Mm-hmm. And so I get out there what I believe about monogamy for very, in some ways for a conservative reason, to keep couples together, to keep people together, knowing that infidelity will inevitably touch 
almost every relationship, half of men, half of women in long-term relationships, will cheat at some point. Right. Those men and women aren't all with each other, so it's not like 50% of relationships are protected. It's inevitably going to probably happen. And so if we put it out there that when there's an infidelity, that means there must be then a divorce, we are writing the death warrants for our marriages and our relationships at the, at the beginning. Right. And my attitude is, you know, there's the idea, you know, open relationships, non-monogamy, monogamish relationships. That's one thing. There's also putting out there that adultery is a thing that happens. It's not a good thing. It's a betrayal. It mm-hmm. should be something you can forgive and work past, and a relationship should be expected to survive it. That we should that should be the default expectation. That right. this is something that a loving couple can work through and get past. The default expectation right now is this is always everywhere the end of a marriage, the end of the relationship, and infidelity. Right, And I think that that destroys a lot of homes and traumatizes a lot of children, and it actually places too much emphasis and importance on sex. Yeah, which and is... Ex- you look, at, you look mm-hmm. at a relationship and you say, here's here are two people, their commitment, all these years they have together, the children they may have together, the property they own together, the two families that they've knit together, the extended family, and you look at all of that and say, well, all of mm-hmm. that has to be thrown away. All of that is less important than that, than that one ill-advised, you know, Right. Moral sex session on a business trip. All of that has to be thrown away, right? Because there yeah. was this thing that happened. Yeah, and my we've... take, and I think it's a conservative take. It's you don't throw all of that away because of that assignation on the business trip, right? Mm-hmm. And I agree. I think people try to because that's a very well thought out, very intelligent argument. And I can tell you, many times people try to pigeonhole you and the things that you say. Obviously. You've been in hot water many, many, many times. <laughs> if you read your bio at all, yeah, I feel like a lobster. <laughs> well, you're you're really good at it, and yeah. I and and I love your reaction. But you know that's a very well thought out statement. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. other maybe people who don't want people to to maybe hear you, they really boil down that argument and just focus on, like you said. Focus on the sex. I think when we yeah, put in society that it's, yeah, we don't, yeah. like you said, we don't give an option otherwise. And you're saying, listen, it happens. Yeah, and my take is nuanced and complicated, and it takes a couple minutes, as I, you know, just proved to explain, right? Right. Yeah. I am not pro adultery. I'm not giving people permission slips. I'm not mm-hmm. smiling on serial adulterers. I don't think that people should violate commitments they've made. I don't people think people should make commitments they can't keep. And I don't think the culture should, under duress, con people into making commitments that they can't keep. We tell people that if you are in love, you won't want to sleep with anybody else. Right. And the truth is, if you're in love and you've made a monogamous commitment, you will refrain from it, but you will right. still want to. Right. And right. so this is really nuanced. It gets boiled down to on the religious right. I am pro adultery, and I'm always <laughs> telling people it's okay to cheat, right. and that's not true. And this happens to me a lot. You know, I have, I've said things that are very complicated and nuanced about bisexuality, and on the left, that gets boiled down to that I am bipolar. Right, right. And I'm not. Like, you can yank something out of context. You can remove the the preface and the epilogue and the nuance uh, and everything that I've framed it with and right. walk away with something biphobic. If that's your agenda to promote exactly. biphobia in a way mm-hmm. by finding, mm-hmm. finding it where it isn't. Uh, and it's just a religious right does the same stuff to me. But I'm used to it. And it pays well, especially for Right, of course. Yeah, these see these are the good conversations and good kind of things to talk about. Dialogues, a lot of yeah. uh, dialogues, right? A lot of a lot of your listeners um, really really like to delve into that. And not just the gay men. We have 
you obviously have a lot of uh, female following, and one of my one of my good friends uh, wants me to tell you that she is your straightest groupie with a vagina, and that you kept her company <laughs> all through college while driving comics. So, <laughs> thank well, you for tell that. Tell her yeah. and her vagina that I said hello. Okay, I will tell her vagina that you She's said hello. She's gonna probably write that down and <laughs> she frame will. it. Yeah, just, there you go. <laughs> not just her vagina, her and her vagina. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Both of them. And not, I will not exclude one or the she's other. She's double special yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So um, from the female or more feminist side of the argument, we had uh, Mary Cheney kind of release a statement recently um, wh- about why is drag acceptable and why blackface isn't. And we ha- we talked about that a little bit on the show before you were on. So we wanted to get um, your, your insight on um, you know the whole conversation. Well, I'm not interested in listening to anything that a woman who showers money at conservative yeah. <laughs> uh, anti-queer politicians and worked to re-elect George W. Bush in 2004 exactly. when he was trying a blatantly homophobic re-election campaign attacking same-sex couples all over the country, yeah. including Mary Cheney and her yeah. relationship and her marriage. Exactly. And we and don't blame you. Yeah. And she can go jump in a mic full of razors as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, I think the... Uh, the best response was a video that Matt Baum, who's a journalist here in Seattle, made, really delineating the differences between drag and blackness. You know, drag is an, an expression of that individual's own femininity uh, and their uh, ability to tap into that femininity, and it's really about them personally and their investment. Blackface is never about a white person's inner black person. Blackface is about denig- denigrating right, the group. Yeah. That is bad. There is definitely bad drag out there. You sometimes see yeah. drag that is rooted in misogynistic jokes. You sure. see comedians making misogynistic jokes who aren't doing drag. Mm-hmm. You see shitty comedians mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. tapping into that cultural misogyny. That's not inherent in drag because you see right. a lot of drag that is in no way. You watch RuPaul, RuPaul mm-hmm. herself. There's nothing yeah. misogynistic about RuPaul's exactly. persona, her character, her jokes, her her drag. Oh, yeah. um, can you find a misogynistic drag queen? Yeah, you can also find misogynistic politicians. Yes. So, right. And, right. and Mary Cheney is fine with that. Mary Cheney has no problem no. writing checks <laughs> to politicians who don't think that Mary Cheney should be able to decide what happens to her vagina, whether yes. it's get an abortion, use birth control, or marry a lady. Right. And so Mary Cheney, as, you know, I don't want to swear, but Mary Cheney can go blank herself as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. And she's in no position to lecture other queer people about who they are, what they do, what they think, mm-hmm. or their politics. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Now, I have to say, first of all, thank you so much for taking time on a Sunday morning. Um, we've got beautiful sunshine. Hopefully you guys do over there as well. Uh, and I have to say one thing before we let you go. This has kind of been a smorgasbord of what does Dan Savage think about everything. Yeah. Because <laughs> we've been, we are always opinionated over here. So we've, we've been very curious to have you on. And I, do, I just need to say this is my way too cheesy personal moment that since I was 20 years old, I came out. In a family, my dad was a Baptist minister. I remember reading your book, The Kid, and then starting to read uh, about you. And I remember thinking, there's this man who is not ashamed of who he is, no matter what his opinion is. And he's going to unapologetically just be who he who he is authentically. And for a young preacher's kid just coming out, family disowned him in the beginning. It oh, I'm meant- sorry. Oh, and you know we're good now, so you know we made it after a while. But I have to tell so you, it, it meant so it does get better. As somebody See, said, <laughs> it right? does. I've heard someone say it does get better. <laughs> I need to just say, for all of those kids out there, you have always been a voice 
to give us some strength to be as outspoken as we are. And my dream for this show happened back in my 20s, and it may have taken, you know, almost 20 years to get it, but it is because of people like you who have been out there not ashamed to just put it out as it is. So for all the trouble you get in, outspoken's (laughs) behind you 100%. Well, thank you very much. I'd be happy to come on again sometime and chat. I'm glad that your parents came around. You know, I often get letters from people whose parents are freaking out and yeah. rejecting them, yeah. saying, you know, it doesn't get better, this is what happened. And unfortunately, the, sometimes you have to wait it out. You have to be strong and stand tough. Exactly. And love them love them when they can't love you and get them through it. Um, but, you know, my dad came around, your Baptist dad came around. It happens. It happens all the time. Exactly. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And if we hang on, you know, and part of that struggle we all go through is part of what makes us the people we are now. As hard as that was, you know, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade who the person I am today for for anything. So, Dan, right. you That's are wonderful, smart. and we definitely are going to want to have you on again because obviously we have so many things to get your oh, opinions so many. on. <laughs> and you're a little well, bit thank outspoken. You so much. That's right. Before before we let you go, can we get you to say one quick thing? Um, can you say uh, thanks for listening to Outspoken um, and say your name? And yeah, say your name. Say your yeah. name. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Thanks for listening to Outspoken. This is Dan Savage. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you, Dan. We hope you have an amazing rest of your Sunday. Thanks. You guys, too. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you just joined us, you are listening to Outspoken on KYRS Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And that was the very outspoken and opinionated Dan Savage, who told us what he thinks about everything. That's right. That well, was fantastic. Not uh, everything. That was part one. <laughs> part one of... Yes, of a 20-part series (laughs) called Dan Savage Talks to Outspoken. Dan Savage will be our series now. (laughs) Brand new. All right, we are going to take a quick song break um, before we get into the wrap-up, where we wrap up not presents, but what we were talking about today. (laughs) 